right. Thank you, uh, Matt Doan. And good to be with you. And uh, one of the last things that Donor said is that if you're a guest today, we're so glad to have you here. If you're a guest today after losing an hour of sleep, you are an outstanding guest that we are so thankful you came. Because a lot of people who are even regular Calvary people are probably not here because, oh, we'll just come later or next Sunday's good enough. So thank you for being here. thought about titling today's message, Overcoming an Hour's Loss of Sleep, uh, because uh, you are the overcomers. So we're glad to have you here as we worship together this morning. It's an exciting study as we've been going through the book of Judges, and now we're wrapping up the whole theme on overcoming. We've done some great studies uh, throughout the book, overcoming weaknesses, overcoming a weak faith, overcoming failure to be able to finish strong overcoming through unexpected heroes, all these remarkable people that God records in His Word like Deborah and Barak and Ehud and Jephthah and Samson and Gideon. They're just outstanding people that have very unusual aspects to the way they live their life. And for a lot of them, they wouldn't fit in very well to our world today, to our church like us. But we're thankful for how God uses them. We're thankful for how God uses each of us. This morning we're going to take a look at overcoming a corrupted heart or a spiritual decay that can constantly take place. And what we're going to see in Judges chapter 17 and 18 is what I always think of as sort of a little Instagram snapshot of life in the state of Judges. There is no timeline for this story. It's a story about a man by the name of Micah. And uh, he gathers together himself a Levite priest whose name is Jonathan. And so I just want to give a little heads up. Jonathan is the grandson of Moses. And so you're looking at an individual who is three generations away from one of the great history points of the nation of Israel where the Ten Commandments were given, passing through the Red Sea, the tremendous miracles being set free from Pharaoh. And grandson Jonathan may have been part of that picture at some point. And now he is the one in play between Micah, a regular guy that lives in the state of Israel, and his grandson of Moses, who is a strategic player. And what strikes me about this, so it's probably around 1400, 1300 B.C. is the timeline. You think the grandson of Moses, it has to be close to the beginning of the days of Judges, the conclusion of the days of Exodus. And the life snapshot takes me to something that I was reading this last week. Why why are Judges 17 and 18, why is anything from 1400 B.C. relevant for you and me? That's always been the task in the book of Judges. I was reading something from uh, David Kinnaman, who has written about life as an unchristian world. And uh, one of the concerns that he has, he's a younger man, Uh, And his burden is for those that we refer to as the millennials, the generations that follow. I think about Moses. When Moses was alive, he had a grandson by the name of Jonathan. Moses would never have considered in his own mind's eye, I suspect, that by the time that third generation of Jonathan came rolling around, the world would lie in such spiritual decay as what it was in. My burden... For me, living most of my life already, i got fewer days between now and death than between now and birth for me. And looking around this room, I'm not alone. (laughs) 
Our burden, for those of us like me, is who will be the Jonathans? Who will be the grandsons? Who will be that third generation after us? And will they carry on the belief, convictions that we now maintain today? And if you're here today, I believe that there's some measure of conviction or there's some measure of wanting to discover what that's all about. Here's what David Kinneman writes about who would be that third generation after some of us or the millennials. He says, the reasoning ignores the real issue, and that is this. Millions of 20-somethings are crystallizing their views of life without the input of church leaders, the Bible, or other mature Christians. If we simply wait for them to come back to church later in adulthood, not only will most of those people never return, but also we would miss the chance to alter their life trajectory during a critical phase. And besides, what church couldn't use the infusion of energy, ideas, and leadership that young adults can bring to the table? Although it may come across as unwarranted skepticism, young adults are questioning their church experience in some legitimate ways. Their disenchantment has raised questions for churches related to relevance, discipleship, authenticity, the use of art and technology and ministry, relationships, music, learning styles, and teaching, teamwork, leadership hierarchy, stewardship, and much more. On the flip side of the coin, young adults, many who have grown up in unhealthy families, struggle with character issues, with relational isolation brought on by their hyper-individualism, with Bible familiarity, with being overcritical of their elders. Consequently, many of the legitimate questions young leaders ask get lost in the jumble of generational warfare. I think he's spot on. And it's a reality that you and I who have a certain generation status to our sort of our resume, if you will, that we need to come to grips with a certain reality that there will be a generation or two behind us that we have an obligation and a calling from God to have an impact upon that they would follow in the beliefs that many of us grew up with, that our parents grew up with, that our grandparents tried to pass on to us as well. All of that is what's at stake in Judges 17 and 18. Because we're going to get a little snapshot, a little Instagram of life in the days of Micah and Jonathan as they lived it out in this little area of the world. Let me show you on the map where we're talking about. The beginning point of today's passage is right there in the middle of the nation of Israel. It's just above the, the Dead Sea, between Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, the little red dot. That's where Micah lived. We're going to encounter a group of people called the Danites. The Danites are sort of in that little red spot area, and they're going to migrate up to north where you see Dan there, at the very northern part of the nation of Israel. And we're going to learn about the experience of them, and in three areas we're going to see spiritual decay. The three warning signs of spiritual decay are the three areas that you have on your outline. I encourage you to follow along. 
But let me read about the very first one in Judges 17. Let's meet Micah. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, and that's in that middle area of the nation that you just saw with a red dot, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. So he stole eleven hundred pieces of shekels from his mother. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And then he returned 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, he's, his mother took the 200 pieces of silver, gave them uh, to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and the molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod, and uh, household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. And then this little summary statement in verse 6 that sort of shows this is just a day in a life of a normal family, a regular family in the nation of Israel in 1400 B.C. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so this is a little snapshot of life of a typical family in a typical country of Israel in 1400 B.C. And I wonder, if God took a little Instagram photo picture of your life or my life, your home or my home, what would He see? How would He describe it? If He had described like someone writing the book of Judges, writing our story, what would it say? The first thing that it says about Micah and the sort of the moral relativism of each man doing what's right in his own eye, is the corruption, the spiritual decay that comes in the area of stewardship, financial stewardship. That's the first thing that I noticed that we are reading here. Why did he tell us the story? Notice what happens in Micah's world. Micah gets greedy. The sign of unbiblical stewardship is this greedy standard of taking what is not mine. Can you imagine this guy, Micah, stealing from his own mother 1,100 pieces of silver? 1,100 pieces of silver in those days may have been approximately 20,000 of our dollars. For a lot of you, that's a lot of money. For some of you, that's not that big a deal. But in those days, that might have been a lifetime of savings that allowed them to live an independently wealthy lifestyle. They didn't have all the kinds of stuff that we have to spend money on in those days. And so that was a huge sum of money. That could have been her life savings. A son that steals the life savings from his own mother. Here's his mother curse whoever that thief is. And then he feels this conviction over this curse that his mother utters to his own hearing. And then he says, okay, mom, I am so convicted by your curse that I'll give the money back. And then here's what mom does. She takes 200 pieces of that silver and then gives it back. And she has an ephod, a household idol, and other items that are then created out of that silver as it's melted down. And it goes back in the home. The standard that he is showing us of corruption of finances is where he's stealing things. Now I'm here to confess to you that I have never stolen a dime from my mother when she was living. I suspect that there's probably not a person in this room. I don't know if you'd be willing to raise your hand. Did you ever steal anything from your parents? I mean, 
Probably nobody in this room has ever done that, right? So, right? You haven't done that. Please tell me you haven't done Oh, there's somebody back there who did it. Can we pray afterwards with you? So the relevance of this would be for me to think, you know what? I've never stolen from my mother. Why do I need this? I don't do that. I don't steal from my boss. I don't steal from my neighbors. I don't steal from the bank down the street. I don't steal from the government. I had to swallow big on that one. Um, And so why is it relevant? It's relevant because sometimes we do steal. We just need to look at it from God's point of view. Malachi 2 or 3 says this. Will a man rob God, yet you are, you are robbing me? Whoa, 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 robbing you? I'm not, I'm not robbing you. I don't stick my hand in the offering basket, take money out of it when it passes in front of me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. The application is not, are we stealing from our bosses? Are we stealing from our parents? Are we stealing from our neighbors? The application of Judges chapter 17, 1 through 6. Are we stealing from God? And the mindset that is going on there is that they're taking money and pretending as though it's God's, but they're keeping it for themselves. And it shows it in this way. They act as if they're dedicated to the Lord when they're keeping the possessions for their own temporal desires rather than investing into spiritual, eternal values. Notice in verse 3 what she says. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord. I dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. You hear what she's saying? Such deception. Such an evil heart. I'm going to dedicate this money to you, Lord. And now I'm going to build a little idol in our home so we can worship the idol and not you. And I think to myself, well, I've never melted down silver and built an idol in our home. But every time I walk into my garage and look at things that I have there that are my most valuable things... And Joy has all the rest of the house for her most valuable things, which is okay with me. I'm, I'm happy that way. And I wonder how many of those things have I invested my money into as a temporal desire, and I pretend to be dedicated to the Lord when I'm spending more money on me and my things and the things of this world than I'm investing into the kingdom of God. The danger is that I have the words of dedication to Jesus, but my finances reflect a dedication to myself. One of the most startling realities is when you look, go online. I go online to our Union Bank bank account. And I almost want to give you my password and my username so you can go check it out for me. But I don't think I will. <laughs> but if I go online and check that out, and to find out where has this last month's statement reflected the expenditures of my life. How much says Calvary Church Santa Ana on it? How much says Global Missions on it? 
How much says East-West Ministries that we support on it? How much says Biola University on it? And how much just simply says Dave Mitchell's things on it? And the more reality that I look at where my money goes, the more I realize that either I'm very much like Micah or I'm very much like Jesus, where the investment is for eternal purpose. And so my challenge for us is that you and I have an honest evaluation. Does my investment of money look like verbally I am dedicated to the Lord when in point of fact all I'm doing is spending it on myself as he makes this graven image, this idol that's in his house for their own personal worship services? So selfish. They invested to the things of this world, but their words say, I dedicate it to the Lord. And God says, I'm not going to be mocked by that. That's why First Timothy tells us this, for if we've brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. The graven images that many of us worship, we probably don't have a little idol, a little Buddha thing in our home, but we have a lot of things that we've invested in. We're spending money on a lot of things. And when those things go away, what are we left with, he says. If we have food and covering with these, we will be content. And that's a battle for us in Orange County, to be content with just food and covering when there's so many things that we would love to have. But those who want to get rich, not those who are rich, but those who want to get rich, those whose only goal in life is to get more stuff, they fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And he goes on to say, For the love of money, not money, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, for the future, so they may take hold of that which is life indeed. The mother of Micah and Micah completely disobeyed what I just read. They stored for themselves things on earth like an ephod and an idol in their home. They took their money, dedicated it to the Lord, and then spent it on themselves. God says that's idolatry. God says you take everything that you have, if you're rich, and you use it as an investment generous and ready to share. Why? For a good foundation for the future. For the future. To invest in the generations that come, the millennials that follow behind us, to build and construct and to invest in those things that's going to have a lasting value that when I'm dead and gone, if my house burned up, there's still a legacy of faith that is being passed on to a generation that follows behind me. We need to have a bigger picture than the satisfaction of temporal needs today and then walk around like we're really dedicated to the Lord. We need to have our bank statement reflecting a value system that God is number one and not stealing from Him when I spend it there. He knows that my priority is with Him first. That's the mindset. And the spiritual decay that God points out for us in the days of Judges, when each man did what was right in his own eyes, the spiritual decay, 
the first thing that he points out is the unbiblical use of their financial resources where they spent it on themselves rather than investing generously. I remember it was a number of years ago, I taught through the book of Malachi that we just read earlier, where he says, bring the whole tithe into the warehouse, the storehouse, whatever. And then God says, test me in this and see if I will not provide. And in that particular message that I brought, uh, this is a long time ago now, I gave a challenge out, and the challenge was this. And we called it, I called it the tithes of March. The tithes of, remember that? Anybody remember that? Can you remember any, can you remember like something I said five minutes ago? You know, the tithes of March. And we challenged everybody to tithe for the month of March. And we had one of our best offerings in a long time. And I would challenge you to reconsider that. That God, you ask me to test you in this. And so I'm going to take you up on your word. Is your word true or isn't it? And when I give, I'm going to give according to the way you've given to me. Generous and ready to share. Because I want my bank statement to reflect that you are the priority of my life. And those things I want to buy, they can wait. If you first have not been receiving my gracious tithe in your behalf. I challenge you to consider that. Because we need to keep on hammering these things because we live in a day like Judges 17.6 where candidly most people are doing what's right in their own eyes. And I'll show you statistics to back that up. The first sign of spiritual decay is the misuse of the stewardship of my life, my time, talent, and treasure. And then the second area of decay is this unbiblical spiritual leadership that's taking place. This is when we meet Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. Notice in verse 7 of Judges 17. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, in the family of Judah, who was a Levite. The Levites were those that Moses chose to be the servants in the temple of God, or the tabernacle as it was set up in the early days. They were those that were dedicated to the service of the Lord. They were never given a piece of land in the nation of Israel. But they had 48 cities in which they could live. And so they're kind of a wandering group because they don't have one specific territory like the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin. They had specific territories, not the Levites. And so he was saying to them, but this man, verse 8, this man departed from the city from Bethlehem and Judah, had to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim. And here we meet up with Micah. So Jonathan, we find out later it's Jonathan. He comes to this house of Micah. In verse 9, Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I might find a place. And Micah then said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will dwell with you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. I'll take care of you. And so he was being generous to him. So the Levite went into Micah's house. And the Levite agreed to live with a man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. You know, where to begin with the corruption of what I just read? Let me just break it down to three areas. The first thing that I did not like about Jonathan, the grandson of Moses, by the way, the millennial of the days of Moses, if you will, 
The first thing I noticed about him, he, he didn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what he's all about. He lacks a clear commitment and calling from God. I, I love this sort of this phrase that is used here. He, then the man departed from the city of Bethlehem and Judah to stay wherever he might find a place. And really, in some ways, it's a metaphor for his life. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what he believes in. He doesn't have a commitment and calling from God. He's just wandering. And he just happens to find Micah's house right there in the middle of the nation of Israel and wanders into Micah's house. This man lacks purpose, calling, design, commitment, sort of the kingdom values of why am I here and what am I here to accomplish for you? That's a desperately, desperately vulnerable place to live. If you're one who lacks a sense of calling, commitment, and a belief system that is a foundation to where you want to go in life, you are vulnerable to the next opportunity that will be a temptation to do something wrong. And that's what happens to Jonathan. He's so vulnerable to anything that happens to come along that he picks the wrong choice and he has dire consequences as a result of that. And so this is the danger of even... Our gen- my generation, but even more so of a millennial generation, where there is this lack of commitment, this lack of, of uh, sort of foundation of what do I believe and where do I want to go in life? What is the purpose of my life and what is it that God has called me to fulfill for Him? What is this big picture that I am here for? Why am I even here? Why was I born? What is it that God wants to do through me? We want to bring people to a point where they have clarity, where they have crystallized their thinking, where they understand from God's Word, this is why I'm here. This is what my life is all about. This is why I have purpose in this world. This Jonathan, grandson of Moses, had none of that. And so he wanders into Micah's house. We want to help people find and ground themselves. And that's why we provide things like the Alpha Course, discipleship ministries, life groups, to bring people to places where they can get grounded and no purpose and design of life for them today. He is motivated, though, this Jonathan, by his pride to accommodate the desires of people rather than God. In verse 10 we read, Then Micah said, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. Now, when he walked into Micah's house, what did Jonathan see? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm just trying to keep you from falling asleep and making up for your hour's loss. When he walked, he walked in, he saw the idols. He saw this 200 pieces of silver that had been melted down into an idol. When Jonathan walks into the house, he sees an idol. There is never a word by Jonathan that, you know what, Micah? My grandfather, Moses, he wrote something that we call the Ten Commandments. You know what verses 4 and 5 is? Although they didn't have verses in those days. But you know what verse 4 and 5 is? You know what God said about that? God said you should not have any graven image before you. That is a sin, Micah. So we need to root out that sin. He did not do that. Jonathan was a pleaser of Micah. Jonathan was under the authority of Micah, not God. That's the danger of people like me. I had a pastor friend that some years ago told me. He told me, and I'm surprised that he said this. He says, I have to preach what my people want me to say, not what God says. And I was astounded by that because I need this job. Well, I understand that part of it. But 
that he would preach only what the people say is like Jonathan preaching only what Micah would say. Because Micah brings him in and there is never a word said about that. But notice the Danites came in. I just want to point out something that's found a little bit later on in chapter 18. They come along. The Danites come through the town and they take Jonathan with him. And it says in verse 19 of chapter 18, he says to them, be silent, put your hand over your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. So the Danites want Jonathan to go with them up north to Dan. And so he says, follow us and be a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest in the house of one man or to be a priest for a tribe and a family in Israel? Then the priest's heart was glad and he took the ephod and the household idols and the graven image and he went along with the people. Jonathan, he sells out Micah because he's got a bigger, better opportunity with the Danites up north. So he takes the household idols with him, travels with him and establishes another place of idolatry in Dan in the northern part of the nation of Israel. And you say, Jonathan, what's wrong with you? Moses is literally turning over in his grave now. When he thinks about his own grandson and the, and the corruption and the failure to speak God's truth to the sins that is there. So he fails to confront the obvious sin and to hold the people accountable. And that's what's so tough about sometimes this job. To get up here and tell you, here's what God says. And I hope that you always hear that if I ever say whatever Dave says, you can sleep. But when I say, here's what God says, you better wake up. Because it's not always popular. And especially when I start out talking about your money. First thing, corruption, oh, there he goes. He, all he wants is our money. No, that's not what I want. I don't want your money. But God does. God wants you to have a mindset that he owns it all. You manage it for him. And you invest it for things that will last forever not temporary. And then, with that in mind, you have the Word of God that continues to penetrate and to guide and to teach so that you have full understanding of how and why you are here in this world, unlike Jonathan. And you allow God's Word to continue to speak to you. And this is what Micah says about his idols. You have taken away my gods which I have made and the priest which has gone away. And what do I have besides? It's a desperate place where this man Micah has made his own little g-god. And Jonathan, the priest, the Levite, who knows what his his grandfather said, refuses to confront him in his own sin and allows him to get away with it and compromises his conviction. It's a dangerous place to live. Judges 17.6 again says, Each man did what was right in his own eyes. Here's some statistics by the Barna Organization. 64% of adults say that truth is relative to the person and the situation. Go on down a couple of generations from people like me. 83% of teenagers said that moral truth depends on the circumstances. 83%! When do you get 83% of anybody agreeing to anything? But 83% of teenagers, if you have a teenager, if you have a grandson or a granddaughter who is a teenager, they are growing up in a world where they are making moral decisions based upon how they feel and what they think 
and what the circumstances are, and they're making decisions based upon that relativistic, each person doing what's right in their own eyes. And that's the danger of this generation coming up behind us. And only 6% of the teens say that truth is absolute, that it is always true, that the Bible is always true. 6%. We have a battle in front of us. And you and I, we need to, we need to monitor to that. We need to be a, uh, in love and grace inserting ourselves in that not in some judgmental way because they're not going to take to that but you come alongside you build a relationship and you convince and you urge and you model it am i modeling financial stewardship that the generations that follow me would want to be part of am i modeling a biblical literacy and understanding of biblical truth and rooting out sin once it's pointed out to me am i modeling the purity and the holiness of living a different life in that way am i modeling a a purposeful life where i'm not just wandering from thing to thing but i have a clear calling that's crystallized in my heart and my mind that i know in my mind this is what god wants me to do unlike jonathan who just wanders to the next vulnerable spot and then indulges in idolatry himself but i'm I above the fray of the sinfulness and the corruption and living that life for His cause because it's clear in my mind why I'm here and I am all over that, Lord. I have a clear purpose and design from You and I know what I believe and I'm all over that in commitment to You because the days of judges, they lack that. And I hope we don't lack that because my biggest concern is not for my life, and my generation, but after I'm dead and gone, and I'm turning into dust, who else is going to be here saying what we're saying? And am I investing in ways that's going to allow that to last? And that's part of what I'm thinking a lot about these days of my life. And I hope many of you are as well. Are my finances a reflection of that? Is my time a reflection of that? Is what I'm pursuing a reflection of that? of that investment so that there are more than 6% of teens who think this is true and relevant for them today. And then finally, well, let me just say this. Second Timothy says this, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and with great patience. Sometimes we want to get all over people that we think that disagree with us. It takes patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They won't endure this, and maybe we're already there. Maybe Paul's prophecy of Timothy and the church of Ephesus and the country we call Turkey today. Notice where Turkey is today. This is the people that he was writing to. Totally lost in biblical truth and sound doctrine. But they want their ears to be tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. See, they'll accumulate teachers with their own desires. I'll go to the teacher that will tell me what I want to hear. I don't want to go to the one that tells me what God says. That's the danger, he says. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths, to the spiritual world. That's the danger. And so that becomes a corruption in unbiblical values and lifestyles. And, and let, let, me just, let me show you this video that some of you have seen. I thought it was pretty good. And uh, I think it's good for us to be reminded. If you haven't seen it, you should see it as well. It comes from the Harvard Business School and therefore not a, a hotbed of Christian fundamentalism. 
But notice what this Harvard professor says, and there's two observations I want to make about it. So take a look and listen. Some time ago, I had a conversation with a Marxist economist from China. He was coming to the end of a Fulbright Fellowship here in Boston. But I asked him if he had learned anything that was surprising or unexpected. And without any hesitation, he said, yeah, I had no idea how critical religion is to the functioning of democracy. The reason why democracy works, he said, is not because the government was designed to oversee what everybody does, but rather democracy works because most people, most of the time, voluntarily choose to obey the law. And in your past, most Americans attended a church or a synagogue every week, and they were taught there by people who they respected. My friend went on to say that Americans followed these rules because they had come to believe that they weren't just accountable to society, they were accountable to God. My Chinese friend heightened a vague but nagging concern I've harbored inside that as religion loses its influence over the lives of Americans, what will happen to our democracy? Where are the institutions that are going to teach the next generation of Americans that they too need to voluntarily choose to obey the laws? Because if you take away religion, you can't hire enough police. All right, two observations. The first observation is obvious. You need faith, you need religious structure, you need something that does something inside my heart because you really can't have enough cops, no, make, no question about it. The second observation is this, and this is the warning shot. As good as I like that, here's the warning shot. Satan's not so upset about that either. I'll tell you why. Because there is nothing about it except saying that all religions are equal, all faith is good, doesn't matter what you believe, just believe something. And whether it's in Judaism or Islam or Christianity or Buddhism, Hinduism, you need religion. Well, no, we need Jesus. Jesus is the crystallizer of faith that lasts forever. All others are idolatrous. All others are like the ephod in Micah's home. Micah had religion of his own making. What God wants is faith in Jesus alone. That's what counts. And the danger is that we swallow this holistic spirituality without delineating the importance of the central figure of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to watch out for. That's the subtlety of how good that is. And so the people went up to Dan. I have pictures of Dan. We went up there. I wanted to make sure to show you those so I could have his tax write-off here in April. But uh, we went up there, and this is the gate that goes into the city of Dan. And here is where, this is the location where Jonathan, grandson of Moses, and I've said that enough times, Jonathan built his idol. He took those idols. I don't have time to go through the rest of the chapter, but he took those idols from Micah's home and sold himself to a bigger opportunity 
Instead of serving one man, Micah, he said there, why don't you come up and serve a whole community? So he goes up there and he builds it. This is the place where the Baal worship. Jeroboam then came along later and he built a place of worship there. And that one lone figure there is uh, our own uh, Leonard Stiles that goes here to Calvary uh, Church. And you can see that he's sort of depressed looking because we voted him to be the one sacrificed on the idol. One of <laughs> oh, I'm just joking. We love Leonard. We're glad that he and Linda were there with us. The challenge is this. We need to live by a moral... We need to watch out that we live by a moral relativism. Moral... My hours loss is catching up with me. Live by a moral relativism of society's values as opposed to doing what God says. There's such a risk of that. Be alert to it. To develop our own individual spiritual journey rather than be anchored in God's ordained community of the church... Here's, I just want to make a quick point on this. Here's what happened. I wish I had more time to explain the text, but here's what happened. They took the Levite, Jonathan, took the idol, placed it up in Dan. And notice in verse 31 on the big screen behind me. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. There's a subtle message there. It's this. This man, Jonathan, took that idolatry and placed it up there in Dan and said, let's just make our own little spiritual resort. Dan is a very beautiful area, by the way. It's very green, lush, lots of water. So let's build our own little enclave of our own spirituality. Then God says, but wait a second. That's not where I called you to worship me. My worship spots down there in Shiloh. How dare you to create your own place of faith, well, almost fell, your own place of faith, when in point of fact, I want you to be here in Shiloh. And here's the, here's the, uh, the 21st century uh, timeless principle. We've got people today who are creating their own little spiritual enclave where they do and believe whatever they want to do and believe, like Jonathan and the Danites. When God says, no, there's a community, it's called the church. That's where God's people gather. That's where God's people worship. That's where God's people serve. Not just on Sunday, but throughout the week, throughout the world. It's the church that I'm part of that allows and facilitates and enhances and encourages and guides and rebukes and charges and challenges me to do God's work. And we've got a lot of people in the millennial age where going to the local church is a foreign concept. And there's a lot of people my age where going to the church is a foreign concept. And we have our own little spirituality in our home, our own little spirituality in our heart, our own little form of of Micah idolatry, of belief system, where every man does what's right in his own eyes. And we get it somewhere else, but we don't get it through what God said is His place, the church. Like God said, my place is in Shiloh for them. Go there. And then we assimilate to the world's values, and that's the danger. Let me quit, finish with this. Go back to David Kinneman. I love this guy. He is an uh, outstanding uh, researcher taking over, bought the Barna Institute. And here is my last salvo shot across the bow, if you will, for me. I was convicted by this, so I want you to be equally convicted as I am. So we can be convicted together. 
I'm an equal opportunity preacher today. Here's what David Kinnaman wrote in his book called Unchristian. I know it's hard to listen to people like me read, but please listen carefully. Here's something they found. We found that most of the lifestyle activities of born-again Christians were statistically equivalent to those of non-born-again Christians. When asked to identify their activities over the last 30 days, born-again believers were just as likely to bet or gamble, to visit a pornographic website, to take something that did not belong to them, to consult a medium or a psychic, to physically fight or abuse someone, to have consumed enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to have used an illegal non-prescription drug, to have said something to someone that was not true, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she did, and to have said mean things behind another person's back. That born-again believers were just as likely to have done that as non-born-again believers. Thus the point. Are we becoming too much like those that we say that we are against? Or have we assimilated and become one with them? The challenges for us as we conclude the book of Judges is to make sure that we indeed are overcomers. I'm going to pray for us and then as we continue to worship, as we receive the offering, I pray this offering is a reflection of my commitment to Jesus, not a commitment to myself. And on the back side of the outline that I put a little verse there, 1 John 5, 4 and 5, and it says how to overcome this world by believing in Jesus. Would you reflect upon that and use some of that to reflect upon as God speaks to you regarding some of these issues? And I know that He's spoken to me. I hope He's speaking to you that God is refining us to be the people that won't allow the book of Judges to be reproduced in our generation and the generations that follow us, but that we live it, we model it, we believe it, we have conviction for it, and we'll do everything we can to pursue it. That's what we need for us today. Let me pray. Father God, I thank You that You're going to help us by Your Holy Spirit to be the people You want us to be, to live this truth according to Your Word, according to Your will. Father, strengthen us. There will be temptations and vulnerabilities that will come at us. God, we are at risk of becoming like the people of the days of Judges where each person does what's right in their own eyes. God, I recognize that. And in these areas of the financial distortions, the spiritual leadership that is lacking, the assimilation into the values of this world that, that we're all prone to, God, I pray that we would live the life You've called us to live. Us in this room. Not anyone else out there, those people out there, but us in this room. Let us be a shining example of how to live that life for Your sake. To be the overcomers of a world that wants to undermine Jesus Christ. Father, thank You for it as we commit it to You in Christ's name. Amen.